Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. A U.S. District Court judge ruled last week that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services must eliminate the Medicare appeals backlog by the end of 2022. Reporting our lead story this morning will be healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. In other news, CMS released its 2019 Medicare Home Health Final Rule. Reporting that major story will be William Dombey. Mr. Dombey is the president of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. Also on today's Monitor Monday, healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Rack Monitor investigator reporter and New York attorney Edward Roach is standing by to report on how IT adds to the cost of healthcare, but without the benefits. And Nancy Beckley returns with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday Lister survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Today is another edition of What's Interesting in the News. Well, first up, I planned a big celebration for November 3rd. That was the three-year anniversary of CMS's proposed changes to the discharge planning regulations. And at the three-year anniversary, it would have sunsetted if they didn't act. Now, you may recall this is when they proposed that all observation patients and all outpatients getting anesthesia or sedation would need a formal discharge plan. They also proposed requiring discharge summaries to go to the primary care doctor within 48 hours, adding LTACs and ERFs to the requirement for offering patient choice, requiring hospitals to give patients quality and cost efficiency data on all the post-acute providers, and requiring brand and generic names of medications to be on the medication reconciliation, plus much more. Well, CMS said in a notice published on October 30th that they're extending the review process for another year. They claimed there were exceptional circumstances. Now, I had to check the news to see if there was a hurricane in Baltimore or wildfires that destroyed their infrastructure, but there weren't. They just needed more time. Oh, well. Uh, I also wanted to update you on the national coverage determination for defibrillators. As you recall, back in February, CMS released a decision memo changing some criteria, including the need to report to a registry. Well, nine months later, and CMS has still not released a new NCD, nor any claim processing instructions to the max. That means that although registry reporting is not required, it may need to be done to get the claim paid. If you're still reporting to a registry, ask your MAC if you can stop. By the way, the RACs are auditing defibrillators for medical necessity. One provider that contacted me had eight out of eight cases denied by the RAC, and all eight were overturned on discussion. It was clear to the provider that the RAC made no effort at all to review the whole record to find the pertinent information. Because once the hospital gave the RAC a breakdown of where in the record to find each element of medical necessity, they approved every record without submission of a single additional document. You know, it's a shame that CMS doesn't require the RACs to report their overturn rate on their discussions. 
I wonder how many hospitals out there do not take the time or have the resources to participate in the discussion and, and simple, um, simply accept denials and move on. Just as many Medicare Advantage plan denials um, are um, passed without any appeal. We heard last week from Nicole Emanuel how the MA plans overturned 75% of their own denials on appeal, but only a small number of denials actually get appealed. Now, I suspect that the Monitor Monday listeners are not the ones who are not appealing, but we need to get the word out. Discussions and appeals work. Don't give away care that you deserve to be paid for. And finally, last week, the head of Health and Human Services said that they are going to start introducing more bundle payment programs very soon, including mandatory ones like the CJR program. The prior HHS had canceled all the mandatory programs, but Alex Azar is a firm believer. We have no details yet, but it is expected that radiation therapy for cancer will be one of them. I'll keep you updated on the show. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of Bar One Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. I've just returned from the American Physical Therapy Association's private practice section meeting. Spoke with longtime listener Wade Meyer on a lot of compliance initiatives in physical therapy. Good to see many people in the audience coming up and giving their greetings as loyal Monitor Monday listeners. What I want to talk about this morning is... Um, Seema Verma's memorandum last week regarding reduction in provider burden. And she indicates that one key initiative that CMS has launched involves streamlining the measures that clinicians report. And she stated that a recent health affairs survey found that U.S. medical practices and four common specialties on average spend per physician of striking 15.1 hours per week and over 40 grand per year reporting quality metrics. And as PTOT and speech are about ready to get into that, it's kind of frightening. The litany of regulations in healthcare contributes, according to Verma, to the consolidation they're seeing in the healthcare system. One example of common sense uh, regulatory change that CMS has made this year, according to Verma, is changing policy on medical student documentation so patient notes written by medical students can now be used for billing after the attending signs off. And so the implementation of MACRA, they've worked hard to ensure a gradual transition for clinicians to the new payment system. And they recently addressed payment differentials between site of service that reduce competition in the system. Furthermore, she goes on to mention the 2019 rule for the physician fee schedule, and CMS recognized another opportunity on behalf of the community regarding clinician burn, burnout and burden that come as a result. So they heard that a frequent source of burnout is documentation associated with evaluation and management coding. And we all know Dr. Hirsch encouraged all of us on Monitor Monday to send in our notes to CMS prior to the deadline, and CMS received more than 15,000 comments, which reaffirmed the need to reduce provider burden on clinicians and provided CMS with feedback. So effective January 1st of 2019, they're going to simplify documentation of history and exam for established patients, 
clarify that for both new and established DNM office visits, a chief complaint or other historical information that's already into the record by ancillary staff or by patients can simply be reviewed and verified and eliminate the requirement for documenting medical necessity of furnishing visits in the home versus office and remove potentially duplicative requirements for certain notations in medical records, et cetera. You can read um, uh, Administrator Verma's memorandum at the CMS website. So with that in mind, I'd like to take a Monitor Monday listener poll today to see what your sense is of the reduction in administrative burden. And our poll this morning is brought to us by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. So I'd like to know, is CMS making progress, from your opinion, at reducing provider burden under the Patients Over Paperwork Initiative? Click yes if you think provider burden is being reduced. Well, click no if maybe, maybe, maybe not. Click number three if no, you don't feel that provider burden is being reduced. And click number four if the jury is still out. Chuck, David Glazer will be giving the poll results a little bit later in the program. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley Associates. As Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from William Dombey, David Glazer, Ed Roach, and Andrew Walkler. This is Monday, it's November the 12th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Trusted for more than 50 years, the AMA drives healthcare communication for medical procedures and services. The AMA CPT code set is constantly updated by the AMA CPT editorial panel with insight from clinical and industry experts. It reflects the latest innovations in healthcare and helps to improve the delivery of care. The AMA store offers a full line of products to address CPT, HCPCS, ICD-10 coding, reimbursement, practice management, impairment, HIPAA, and electronic health records. To purchase these products and more, visit amastore.com. There's a program note I wanted to remind you about. There's going to be an excellent webcast coming your way this Wednesday, and it features Dr. Julian Ugarte Hopkins. It's entitled, Beyond the CMS 2 Midnight Rule, What Do You Need to Know About Patient Status and Utilization? It's going to be a great webcast. It's coming your way this coming Wednesday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. And now with the Monitor Money Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, what is risky today? Good morning, Chuck. So I'm reporting from Florida today, where I'm at NamUs, about to give a talk about tips for internal investigations. Uh, I'd like to cover a bit more about the 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. So first, last week, I mentioned how confusing the instruction is for billing when using a prolonged visit code. Now, in most cases, you round time for CPT codes, but CMS takes the position that for prolonged visits, you have to have the full amount of E&M time uh, for a code before you can add a prolonged code. Now, we received a couple of questions last week challenging whether it's truly appropriate to round time for E&M codes, and the answer to that one is perfectly clear. If you read the CPT instructions, and I'm never sure with a Roman numeral if I do XV or 15, but it states, when codes are ranked in sequential typical times, and the actual time is between two typical times, the code with the typical time closest to the actual time is used. And it then refers you to the Evaluation and Management Services Guidelines. So that should eliminate all doubt 
it's completely appropriate to round time when billing an E&M code. Once you hit 32.5 minutes of counseling and coordinating care, you can bill a 99215. Now, the new 2019 fee schedule also includes a variety of changes intended to reduce the administrative burden. This plays nicely into Nancy's poll question. Now, I welcome these, but I want to emphasize that many of them don't change the Medicare requirements. They merely make overt what should have been very well accepted all along. For example, the new changes state that the physician need not re-record in the medical record information recorded by a patient or other ancillary staff on a history form. Now, I've never seen any requirement that the physician must personally re-record that information. I appreciate CMS making clear that the widespread miscommunication that things must be re-recorded by the physician is a fallacy. I wish they'd been clear that there's currently no such requirement. The fee schedule implies that if you have a history form in the patient's file and the physician has failed to recopy it all, you're not permitted to consider the form for determining the level of service. And that is simply untrue. There is not a general requirement that physicians personally document information. Well, there are a couple of exceptions, including one on the teaching physician regulation that's also changed by the fee schedule. Right now, the regulation requires a physician to personally document their participation in an E&M service. But even that statement doesn't require the physician to re-record all of the information already in the record. It merely requires the physician to personally state that they were involved in the delivery of the service and that they Basically, it's the thing that we're, we handle with an attestation, right? They're not required to redocument everything. Now, under the change, anyone can document the physician's involvement. But even before the change, the actual medical record document can be done by a resident, NP or PA or resident. Now, I know many of you are currently doubting me, but ask yourself this question. Ten years ago, did you ever hear anyone assert that if a physician dictated the medical entry was invalid because a transcriptionist, rather than a physician, recorded the information in the medical record. Of course you didn't, because that position would be utterly and completely absurd. It's also not the law. Well, let's put it this way. I don't know of any law or regulatory change in the last 10 years that would change the analysis. So we'll talk more about the fee schedule and other tidbits that will keep you out of trouble in a RAC Monitor webinar on December 18th. The sign-up isn't available yet, but it will be out soon. So I thank CMS for the clarification, but I wish that they had explicitly busted a widespread myth. Chuck, rest assured that what I am telling you is, as Michael Penn would say, no myth. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder at the law firm of Fredericks and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. There are numerous reports on the high cost of healthcare. In this morning, Rock Modern investigator reported in New York attorney Ed Roach reports on how healthcare IT adds to the cost of healthcare, but without offering the benefits. Ed? Hey, Chuck. This series is inspired by my recent hospitalization in Spain. All of the services there were equivalent. But the bill showed cost is less than 10% of what we pay. The only difference, in Spain there is considerably less reliance on information technology. 
our hypothesis is that IT pretends to improve healthcare but actually degrades productivity. Let's look at the big picture. From 1970 until today, health expenditures went from around 6% to around 18% of GDP. For the rest of the world, from 5% to 10%. World cost doubled, the U.S. tripled, and this doesn't include the lawyers. We spend 10350 per person, other developed countries 5170 Our healthcare costs grow faster than GDP, 10% per year in the 1980s, 6% per year since then. Even President Trump can't get the economy to grow that fast. Americans spend an average of $1,500 on drugs compared to 750 in comparable countries, twice as much. Costs for common procedures, knee replacement, cesarean birth, unclogging blood flow, all higher in the U.S. Does this extra money buy quality? U.S. citizens go to the doctor or stay in a hospital about the same amount as in comparable countries, but suffer from the lowest life expectancy and the highest infant mortality. U.S. life expectancy is 78.8 years. In comparable countries, it is greater, 81 to 84. Behind this out-of-control cost is a bureaucracy so big it boggles the imagination. Administrative costs in the U.S. account for 8% of GDP, but only 3% in comparable countries. Billing and insurance-related costs are very high for private health insurers. There is no standard billing system. Healthcare providers must adjust their information systems to interface with multiple and differing billing and claim systems, all constantly changing. This staggering complexity is impossible to overcome, yet IT budgets continue to grow. Every month, a new breakthrough technology is introduced. New applications such as nurse communication systems and voice recognition add an impression that IT is transforming healthcare. We suffer from the illusion that a computational fix can be found for every problem, for every new workflow, for every new coding change. Each new technology promises to increase efficiency, but none do. Instead, what we find is that for patients, there is a negative correlation between more IT and healthcare outcomes. U.S. healthcare is almost evenly divided between public and private spending. But for comparable countries, public spending is around 80%, leaving only one-fifth for the private sector. Data shows that single-payer systems have a lower cost than multi-payer, and public systems have a lower cost than private. But do we really believe that a single-payer system in the U.S. would work as well as in other countries? Would it cut out the more than 80% of the cost needed to match Spain? Or, given the season, would it be a turkey? In the next installment, we will examine the symbiotic relationship between the regulatory regime, bureaucratic complexity, and the search for a way out through simplification. See you then. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Modern Investigator Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach. And you can read his reporting on this subject on our homepage at rackmonitor.com.
The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has released its 2019 Medicare Home Health Final Rule, reporting that major story is the president of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, Bill Dombey. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Chuck. Great to be back with you all. On Halloween, we had a little surprise sent to the home health care community. At 4.15 Eastern Time, the Federal Register published what is will be considered one of the most important rule changes uh, in the history of the home health benefit. It actually has two parts to it. One is the 2019 payment rates with a bit of potpourri attached to that. But then the 2020 new payment model uh, has been finalized by CMS. For 2019, it's actually a good news year. It's the first rate increase that Medicare home health agencies have had since 2010 with a 2.2% increase. Uh, The 2019 rates also include the rural add-on adjustments uh, that for the first time are targeted based upon the location of the patient, whether the patient's in a high utilization area, a low population density area, or all the others. It would be phasing out that rural add-on also over a series of years. The 2019 changes also bring in a new home infusion therapy benefit. We won't get into detail on that other than to say it's no real benefit. A few other odds and ends regarding some improvements in the home health value-based purchasing program and some quality data changes. But the biggest changes uh, are there on the horizon for 2020. Uh, Beginning January 1st, 2020, the payment model for home health services will be completely revolutionized compared to the model of today. It's known as the patient-driven groupings model. And in fact, it's not much more than a warmed over home health groupings model, which I've talked about on Monitor Mondays in the past. PDGM starts with a reclassification system, a case mix adjustment model that expands from 153 categories to 432 different patient categories. A central feature of it is the elimination of therapy volume as a payment determinant. Since the beginning of prospective payment in the Medicare program, the volume of therapy has mattered greatly in terms of how much actually is paid for home health services. This has been a problem within the home health world because it incentivizes the delivery of services, whether they're needed or not, uh, by mandate from Congress, but also through direction at CMS itself, along with the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, several years of work going in to create a new model that eliminates the therapy volume determinant. This may change practice significantly. In addition, something that will also affect practice is moving from a 60-day episodic payment to a 30-day payment unit, while all other 60-day factors continue, such as the certification period, the plan of care, and the patient assessment, the 30-day payment unit will require double the number of billings for home health agencies. But two of the most important factors that need to be considered relate to payment. One, Congress mandated as part of the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 that the new model be budget neutral. That is an improvement over CMS's original proposal. But Congress also authorized the continuation of a behavioral adjustment. CMS plans to make that behavioral adjustment for 2020 based on bare assumptions of change within home health agency practices that relate to the coding of diagnosis, the input of comorbidity data, as well as adding visits to overcome the low utilization payment adjustment threshold. LUPA is what's that known as. 
that proposed adjustment was set at 6.42%. While CMS finalized the concept of a behavioral adjustment, it did not finalize an actual number. So we could see it be more or less than 6.42. So home health agencies, Chuck, they need to be ready for the roller coaster ride into this new payment model. Everything changes from operational to clinical practice to financial approaches, as well as even data analytics. So thanks, Chuck, for the opportunity to join your group again today. Thanks, Bill, very much. That was the president of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, Bill Dombey. A U.S. District Court judge ruled last week that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services must eliminate the Medicare appeals backlog by the end of fiscal year 2022. Reporting a lead story this morning is healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Drew, good morning. It seems like we've been down this road before. It seems like we have, Chuck. I think this is probably a, a little bit different. Let me put it in context. I know from the hospital inpatient outpatient perspective, you know, we had some alternatives to reduce the backlog, but there are a lot of folks still suffering from it. I spent the week last week in Irvine, California, having an in-person hearing because of what was at stake for a home health agency who had a denial rate of 93.5% and $3.5 million. The claims were dated, and this was just last week, we had the hearing, 2010, 2011, the reconsideration was in 2014, and now we have a home health agency. The vast majority probably would be out of business if they had to pay this. And uh, when we were done with the hearing, it appeared that, um, and there was a concession on behalf of the medical director, that the vast majority of claims were uh, payable and were incorrectly denied. And this is what uh, providers are are facing. So this case will be um, somewhat helpful, but it really tracks um, what um, is going on in terms of the increase in budget. Um, We're down this road because we previously had a a, a ruling of 30% reduction by 2017, 60% by the end of 2018, 90% by 19, and 100% by 2020, and and what the court said is it remanded it back uh, to the district court to determine whether this was impossible, as was the position of um, CMS. What happened in the interim was that uh, the uh, budget of uh, March 2018 um, awarded an additional $182.3 million to Omaha. And even though they currently have 426,594 appeals still in the backlog, this new money uh, virtually doubles the amount of ALJs that they will have. And so the court required, based upon CMS's uh, own projections, that they could reduce the uh, backlog by 19% by 2019, 49% by 2020, 75% by 2021, and eliminated by 2022. Um, There was a request by the American uh, Hospital Association that 
The court should also reduce the interest payment, allow providers to rebuild the claim, and make sure HHS um, continues with their settlement options. Uh, the court ruled that um, uh, once we issue this mandamus, we leave the parties to effectuate it um, as much as possible. Um, look, uh, they have the budget to do it. Uh, we'll see. It's a balance of what gets audited, and we may find ourselves uh, along the way in 2020, 21, or 22 uh, back at it if it's uh, not being reduced along these uh, time frames. And when it does get reduced, we're supposed to have our hearing and decision within 90 days. So we'll see if we uh, actually make it. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Drew, very much. That was healthcare attorney Andrew Walker. Drew is a managing partner of Walker & Associates. And now's the time for our Monitor Money listener survey. You bet. And first, thanks to the American College of Physician Advisors for sponsoring our survey. And let's take a look at the results. 49%. The jury is definitely still out at 49%, with uh, the next closest at 28%, with burden not being reduced, 17%, well, maybe, and 4%, yes, the burden is being reduced. If you have a bunch of good questions, Probably not time to do too many. Um, we'll answer those offline, but Laura has a good one. Does this mean that the MA and nurse can collect and document the HPI now? And here's how I'd answer that one. I think that right now the MA or nurse can collect and document the HPI. I think that's true today. The question is always going to be, what evidence in the record is there that the physician reviewed it? And it isn't legally required that there be evidence, but it is highly advisable that there be evidence. Uh, um, at a minimum, I would like to see the physician say, see the history by the MA, and ideally, they would mention something in it. Chuck? Thanks again, David, very much. Uh, that's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, William Dombey, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Ronald Hirsch, Ed Roach, and Andrew Walkler, and we thank you for starting off your week with us. And before we go, a reminder that there won't be a Monitor Monday next Monday, November the 19th. That's because it's the run-up to the long Thanksgiving weekend, and we wish you all a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday Direct Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.